0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world for the European Council on Foreign Relations. This is part of our special summer series on strategic sovereignty where we look at all the different ways in which Europe's ability to advance its values and ideas in the world is being constrained by others in an increasingly tense great power competition which is undermining multilateral institutions and restricting European freedom of action. Over the next few weeks we're going to span from hybrid warfare and AI to more conventional military threats but this week we're going to be looking specifically at the question of secondary sanctions Helping me make sense of this topic, I have three excellent guests. First up is Ellie Gerenmeyer, is the deputy head of ECFR's Middle East and North Africa program and a senior policy fellow at ECFR, and also author of the paper which we put out as part of our strategic sovereignty series on meeting the challenge of secondary sanctions, which she co-wrote with Manuel lefon amnuit And also joining me down the line from Washington, we have Liz Rosenberg, who is a senior fellow and director of the Energy Economics and Security Program at the Center for New American Security. She's also a former Treasury official and uh, has been uh, coordinating a task force on sanctions and about to launch another one on coercive uh, economic uh, power. Uh, She'll tell us more about it later. And finally, also... Absolutely thrilled to have uh, Henry Farrell uh, on the phone. He is uh, from Bethesda. He is Professor of Political Science and International Affairs at George Washington University and co-author of a book called Privacy and Power with uh, Abraham Newman, which uh, majors on this whole topic of weaponized interdependence, looking at how uh, global economic networks have uh, shaped power, but particularly looking at the transatlantic tensions around that. So, Ellie, why don't you start by telling us why we should be particularly worried about secondary sanctions at the moment, what it means for Europe and what the kind of main vulnerabilities that you've discovered are?
1: Sure, Mark. Well, the, the, the story that brought me to this topic was really the experience for European actors on the Iran nuclear deal in the aftermath of the US withdrawal a year ago now. And really, that um, event has served as a wake up moment um, for European governments that actually, when faced with US secondary sanctions on issues where their foreign policy agendas um, are at odds with the United States, there is actually a whole amount of vulnerabilities that the Europeans are exposed to, and very few tools for actually responding um, to the way that the United States is weaponizing this interdependence between. European actors and the US market for its own interests now this challenge has been around for some time uh, but it's really grown intense um, over the last few years and um, uh, not just under the Trump administration, but even under the Obama administration, the difference was under the Obama administration, the Europeans were very much aligned on their foreign policy objectives uh, with respect to Iran and other countries uh, and the way sanctions policies were being crafted but increasingly, under the Trump administration, it seems that while the Europeans are looking at uh, at sanctions as a tools for changing behavior of the target entity, uh, the US is just doubling down uh, on sanctions as a, as a means and it ends in themselves. Um, so the paper, first of all, unpacks um, the vulnerabilities at hand for Europe from what we've called this asymmetric interdependence with the US economy due to the size of the US market and the global role of the US dollar and its dominance really over financial networks and we've looked at um, the fact that it's going to take quite a lot of effort and time for for European autonomy to develop in this area but we've really highlighted that um, this is a this is a issue to really be reckoned with. The trajectory of secondary sanctions uh, look quite worrying from a European policy planning perspective. Um, currently, the US is the only country in the world that's actively using secondary sanctions, uh, and it's so far really tried to use it on closed economies like Iran and North Korea and C- Cuba. But we're increasingly see, increasingly seeing the both the executive branch and the legislative branch in the US uh, using it on more open economies like russia potentially one day on china and bear in mind these other global powers like russia and china particularly the latter in china could themselves begin to use secondary sanctions in a way to impose their own geopolitical interests and really the bottom line of the paper is that europe shouldn't be stuck in the middle without any options now we'll go through the options later in the call but that's the premise of the paper
0: so maybe can come to the other two to talk a bit more about how these, this tool is changing. Because I mean sanctions during the Cold War used to be the, the sort of tool of last resort. It was something which you used to do um, when you'd run out of useful options as a way of uh, largely virtue signaling. But this sort of changed, I think, after 9-11 when um, in the Bush administration they discovered ways of having much more finally targeted smart sanctions and work, working out ways of, of, of using the U.S. financial system, initially in the war against terror. And then um, under the Obama administration, there's a massive ramping up of, of, of sanctions. In some ways, they, they kind of mirrored um, the use of drones in that they were sort of targeted, um, allegedly uh, much more scalpel-like ways of uh, having interventions um without having to put boots on the ground and getting get sucked into to major wars in different places but um liz do you want to because you you studied a lot how the u.s can use sanctions and and some of the consequences of the increase of the use of sanctions can you talk a bit about why they're so attractive and why um there has been this massive increase in the use of sanctions in from from the u.s
2: sure happy to um so you're, you're right to point to that pivot point in uh, right around 9-11. If you think about the history of U.S. sanctions, which surely go back to the beginning of the republic, um, there are many different inflection points, but the perhaps the most important one for the contemporary period of sanctions use is right around 9-11. And actually, some of the pivoting happened before that particular event, But right around that time, there was a real change in some of the authorities that were on the books, and then also the way that they were used. And the significant adaptation that was going on at that time was a kind of redefinition of what sanctions uh, meant from an operational perspective, if you will, the mechanics of of behind the curtain for for sanctions was changing. So in earlier periods of what we call sanctions, those are actually trade restrictions or trade access restrictions. And around 9-11, what was going on was that the, the machinery, if you will, was pivoting over mostly to being financial restrictions. They're banking restrictions, correspondent banking restrictions or banking access, so not trade. The same thing that we were calling sanctions actually shifted from uh, trade embargoes and trade restrictions to a set of uh, banking restrictions. And some people refer to that as an adaptation to financial sanctions, but actually it, the terms are thrown around or used interchangeably financial versus economic sanctions. So you really need to, you know, peel back a few layers to see what was happening at that time. So there are surely some targets in the last in a couple decades almost since um, 9-11, where you're talking about terrorists or other individual um, weapons proliferators or, um, uh, or other na- narco-traffickers that don't really have a U.S. nexus. But, and so labeling them with sanctions really just had a name and shame effect. But there are many, many others where going after an institution or an entity has had a very profound effect Uh, because of their being shut out of the U.S. banking system. They can't get an account. They can't move money. They can't um, uh, do a currency exchange through the dollar without getting caught up by these sanctions. So that was the really big evolution in sanctions. Now, the secondary sanctions that Ellie is uh, focusing on in the paper and that really have seized the attention of so many in Europe, as you've noted, and around the world, that... um, Evolution and significance is um, is much more recent, and it's because of the divergence in policy. It's not that secondary sanctions are only themselves a year or two old, but rather the divergence in policy. Where suddenly the United States has struck out on its own in its foreign policy means that uh, this outsize effect on going after. Um, third countries, if you will, that may have no other nexus to the United States financially can have a really big effect uh, and put them in a difficult position of limited leverage and undercut their uh, financial interests or political credibility. So that's kind of the the broad arc of this evolution.
0: So, Ellie, you talk about um, some of the the costs which these sanctions Already for, for European companies. Um, you say that um, the effect on Airbus, for example, is, is they're losing $19 billion worth of, uh, of, of money of, of, given having to walk away from this contract with Iran Air. Total is losing $2 billion uh, because of its investment in the South Pass gas field. Um, uh, Siemens is losing $1.5 billion because of a railway contract with Iran, which get cancelled. But I suppose that the real cost would be much bigger than that if uh, these sanctions on Iran, which is a relatively trivial uh, economic relationship, uh, if those secondary sanctions were imposed on, on China or on Russia where um, you know on, on, on um, Russia it's 220 billion uh, euros a year that, that it would cost the, um, the, the EU economy and, and China would be over a billion euros every day. Uh, but I suppose that the non-financial costs are even bigger. I mean, Henry, maybe you can talk a bit about how this changes our idea of globalisation because the, the, the role of the dollar has been like a, seen as a public good in many different places. But now they're seeing that it's not actually a global public good, it's a private good. It's become a, an extension of the State Department. Um, so how does that change how other countries relate to the US financial system?
3: Uh, It changes it dramatically. So Abraham Newman and I, my co-author, we are trying to write a book on this, and we've been reading through a lot of the globalization literature from the 1990s, people like Thomas Friedman, who talked about how the world was flat, and how we were getting into a world where the more interdependent we were, the more that our economies came together, and the more that we used this kind of liberal international system of the US dollar, the better everything was going to be for everybody, and the more peaceful the world was going to be. And I think that the developments that Liz described really push against that in some very important and interesting way, because really what the United States discovered, it discovered that all of the networks of globalization, the networks that held globalization together, many of these networks had these kind of strangleholds, these points of pressure which the United States was able to use in order to, in order to achieve various strategic aims and goals, which it might not have been able to do otherwise. Uh, here, the dollar clearing system obviously being the uh, the crucial nexus of control when we're talking about these kinds of financial sanctions. And this had extraordinary consequences for how other states began to think about things. So Victor Cha, who was in the Bush administration, has this lovely quote about how the North Koreans, they're sanctioned using these uh, financial measures and at first they think it's just another sanction but then quote, four weeks later, they realized what had hit them. And frankly, it scared the shit out of them, unquote. So effectively, we find ourselves in a different world. And now that the United States and its allies are beginning to drift apart from each other, this is becoming much, much more intensely politicized. leading to the kinds of consideration of options that Ellie refers to uh, at great lengths in her paper, which I have to say is just a very, very interesting, very provocative, fantastic look at the kinds of things that you might do in response.
0: So Ellie, should we shift into some of the recommendations which you're making? You've got lots of different baskets of, of recommendations. There's sort of five main sets of, of um of tools which you think Europeans could use to uh help insulate themselves from some of this pressure. Do you want to, to run us through them quite quickly?
1: Yes I'll do my best. I think the overarching issue here is that we're recommending we need a process for socializing the risk associated for European governments in responding to secondary sanctions. So just in the way that we have a formal process within the European Union for responding to issues related to competition or trade tariffs, we really need to develop a, a risk sharing and a socialization of this risk mechanism uh, for European governments. And we've we've seen the, the start of this in this Instex, which is uh, this mechanism for special, um, it's a special purpose vehicle for trade with Iran, where several economies in Europe, now 10, have come together to, to share the risk as a sovereign risk sharing exercise uh, for continuing trade with Iran. Um, right now, within the, the permissible area of trade with uh, with regards to US sanctions but in the future this could fold into something bigger and and it's important to note that our recommendations have quite a um, long-term roadmap in mind we're looking at the next decade I guess you could uh, combine the recommendations into a series of short medium and long-term steps that can be taken in the short term uh, we've basically stressed the governments that, Regardless of what's happening on the Iran nuclear deal front, uh, this insect mechanism could have a lot of advantages even beyond the Iran issue. For example, the Europeans at the moment um, are getting into a lot of problems in dealing with Cuba because of renewed U.S. secondary sanctions on, on Cuba. Um, and so this insects could be the, the starting mechanism uh, if it can be credible and, and stand on its own legs um, for, for some sort of initial response again another shorter term response uh, which we think is critical to look at is looking at areas where for example a new regulation, financial regulation can be drafted um, to protect SWIFT in particular which is a Belgium entity operating under EU jurisdiction but yet remains very exposed to US sanctions policy and particularly secondary sanctions. We've also, as a short-term technical measure, looked at the role of central banks and how they might be able to, for example, have special commercial accounts for European companies that trade with entities that are subject to um, external secondary sanctions. Um, And there is some uh, degree of blueprint for this, although uh, uh, for now, central banks in Europe have remained very resistant on the issue of Iran. But say if they're looking at a country like China or a much bigger economy than Iran, the, the strategic calculations may shift. Um, We've also looked in the medium term at at looking at the role of disruptive technology like innovations in blockchains and also the longer term key critical question, of course, will be the role of the euro and how much the Germans and the French are able to give the role of of the euro a a boost in the coming years. And um, I would finally end on a note which is perhaps one of the more critical um, areas for our recommendations and that is as part of this socialization of risk in Europe for responding to secondary sanctions, we've recommended that Europeans work together to come up with essentially asymmetric countermeasures against any country that's going to harm European interests through secondary sanctions. And the idea behind this is is to create a mutual deterrence framework. Um, but you need to start the building blocks for this soon. And of course, you need a strong euro to make this mutual deterrence framework work. But the idea is that in an instance where, for example, and in a future important foreign policy issue where the US and the Europeans diverge, if the US threatens to fine European companies or cut it off from its market, the EU should respond by essentially its own countermeasures against US companies, um, access to its own market, or by freezing the assets of US firms in proportion to penalties being imposed by by, by the US Treasury on its companies for sanctions regulations that are deemed illegitimate uh, in uh, in Europe. Now, we have a track record of, of using economic clout in Europe to to impose our preferences, as we've seen most recently with the data regulation uh, provisions or our comp- petition standards which we're using quite aggressively at the moment and i think the europeans now really need to think about how they build in this process for secondary sanctions it's going to be tough there's going to be divisions in 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 the eu as to how to go about this but it's at least we think time for a real robust discussion particularly with the coming of the eu commission um in the coming months to make this a, a central feature of the discussions ahead
0: So I suppose if you look at those measures, there's a a mix of moves towards greater autonomy so that Europeans are not subject uh, to the tyranny of the dollar in all of the different areas that they're working, but also uh, an attempt at deterrence. Which of those two things do you think is more promising, Liz? I
2: just have to pause for a second here and say just highlight a couple of the phrases that you both just said in the last couple of minutes. So Ellie used the phrase mutual deterrence framework to describe the transatlantic relationship. And you've just used this the phrase tyranny of the dollar. So, I mean, taking us in a group of, you know, other of, of folks, scholars who look at foreign policy and international issues, I would say we are all sturdily within the internationalist camp. And I would bet that we've spent a good deal of our professional career working on, um, you know, transatlantic cooperation <laughs> and, you know, and the, um, and the a positive relationship or uh, between the two. I just want to highlight what an astonishing place we're in, you know that that in fact there are people who are, as Ellie is and and many others in Europe, uh, thinking about this like a deterrence framework between closest of security allies. Um, anyway, so that's just a like a gut check aside. I'd love to yeah. hear what some of you as Europeans have to say about that. But wow, I mean that's that just wow. Um, but to um, go back to your discrete question there, um, if I can analogize with some uh, some of the options that Ellie laid out, it looked to me like there was a group of them that, if you will, looked at like um, hardening the target kind of options, uh, which is you know resiliency, and then there were some other options that uh, I would call offense, you know, like strike back. Um, One thing that I didn't see here, and it may not because you haven't been thinking about this or or working on it, but um, is what I might refer to as uh, defensive options. And uh, that, to me, would be the bucket of things like investing in specific competitive industries or institutions in the EU to, if you will, build up the leverage or the um, the opportunities for uh, deterrence. It's a way of reducing vulnerability by uh, building up that set of assets.
0: What do you mean in concrete terms? Uh,
2: think about the global struggle going on right now about telecoms and the message the United States, amongst others, is offering about Huawei and trying to discourage Europeans and plenty of others from purchasing Huawei network and kit This is not exactly the realm of sanctions, but it has a lot of parallels to what we're talking about here, where the United States is pressuring Europeans um, around a foreign policy set of considerations for this administration and policy. Now, some of the only true competitors to Huawei um, uh, are European, right. So, uh, and the United States doesn't really have alternatives that are quite as competitive internationally. So a different kind of defense could be engaging in or investing in uh, major programs to enhance the competitiveness and reach and market positioning for what are we? Nokia, Ericsson. You know that sort of the only real global competitors that that feature. Less concerns about surveillance and anti-competitive behavior and links to sanctioned entities, if you read the Washington Post story yesterday. But maybe just go back to
0: Henry as well, because you've been looking particularly at the different tensions across the Atlantic. I mean, how asymmetric is this relationship? What tools are available to Europeans? I think that one of the things that I hope that this helps to communicate to people in
3: Washington DC is how very serious the uh, debate in Europe is at the moment and how very seriously many Europeans are considering uh, the question of what their long-term relationship with the United States is and whether or not they need to build in some structural defenses for themselves. That said, I think that if we're moving into a world of the kind that Ellie describes, I think that there's some questions about the European capacity to deliver. And here I would say that there are three things. I think, first of all, as Thomas Schelling, the uh, famous international relations scholar, said, you want to think about credibility. Uh, Is the the European Union, if it gets into a fight with the United States, really credibly going to deliver on some of the threats that uh, it might want to make? And I think Ellie's paper gives some uh, implicit evidence that there still is going to be a lot of division among Europeans, which the United States might be able to use, in order to say that, in fact, uh, these are not going to be particularly credible. Threats. Secondly, there's a question of uh, what Schelling and others call escalation dominance. That is, when you get into this kind of fight where there are going to be tit for tat measures if you're using the offensive measures that Ellie is talking about, then the question is how is the United States going to respond? And which party is going to end up uh, worse hurt in the long run? And here I think the Europeans would have to think very carefully about what the consequences might be of getting into that kind of fight. And the third question is the question of capacity, which is that uh, this is the argument that Abe and I make in our paper on weaponized interdependence. A key to this is understanding how you can or cannot control crucial nodes in the global financial infrastructure. The closest thing that uh, Europe has to such a node is the City of London, which, of course, it may be about to lose, uh, thanks to uh, Boris and thanks to Brexit. And uh, here, I think, one of the implicit messages that that Europe needs to take very seriously is if it wants to be crushed in this world, it has to figure out ways where it can leverage a continued relationship with the United Kingdom, even if this imposes some costs on it in the short term.
0: So if we look forward, because, I, you know, I think through what Ellie said and what you all said, you can see there are pathways both, I mean, on those three... Uh, Uh, timescales that Ellie talked about and also in these three different areas, resilience, defensive and offensive capabilities. Um, But there's a huge amount of inertia in the system. I mean, everyone in Europe um, is basically uh, coming from an Atlanticist perspective. The last thing they want to do is end up in a situation where the relationship with the US escalates and takes on these uh, tendencies, which is one of the reasons why... Europeans have been very reluctant to both take the threat seriously and to go down these different paths. But the Iran nuclear deal was definitely a, a wake-up call in many capitals. If we look forward, what do you all think the, the triggers could be to ushering in a different kind of world?
1: Maybe I'll try and uh, tackle that question and also respond to a few things Liz and Henry have said. I mean, I think the first thing is, as as we conclude in the paper, we're we're really stressing that this this process that we're trying to usher in isn't about trying to undo um, the integration or globalization that the Europeans and and the Americans have have long cooperated on. Neither are we suggesting a a, a fierce decoupling of. Um, you know, setting up completely new parallel financial architectures like the Chinese are doing, which by the way is going to be a very interesting um, story to, to to look at how it unfolds in the next few years but we 're actually talking about finding a more equal and as Henry said credible. Footing in this transatlantic relations with Europe, um, having a bit more bargaining power when it comes to negotiations with the US over foreign policy and trade par- priorities. Um, there's really very little ammunition right now that the Europeans have in the face of secondary sanctions. So ultimately, it's going to have to be a decision for high uh, political office to decide whether, on the global scene, um, they want to have th- this 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 role as as a main. In player or are they going to be viewed as they have unfortunately largely now been as a result of what we've seen on Iran policy as being forced to begrudgingly follow US economic policies now I think one of the things that could really uh, Perhaps speed up the work that's already by the way happening in terms of brainstorming and various European governments now in a serious way I think for the first time is if we look at how um, This the story in Congress moves forward on, on the Russia sanctions um, mark as you mentioned Russia-EU trade is 10 times that of U.S.-Russia um, trade. So there's a lot more at stake for the Europeans if if the current bills that are being considered in um, in the, the legislative branch in Congress, and I'd be really excited to hear Liz's takes, more recent takes on this. If these move forward in an aggressive way or develop into a, another area where secondary sanctions are being weaponized, I think this will really speed up the conversation.
0: So Henry, what about you?
3: So I think that the key thing to be able to think about here is that this is a it's a it's a, there are two things going on, which are which are hard to disentangle. One is a Trump shock, and the other is a structural shock. And I think that the Trump shock is that because Trump is using these sanctions in such a ham-handed way, it really wakes people up to the problem that they face uh, in Europe. Uh, you know, where they have been going along because there has been a large concordance of policy interests, and suddenly there's somebody who has a very different understanding, and also has a very, has people. Who often have a very unilateralist understanding of what us power in the world actually involves and aren't particularly interested in the views of allies in the ways that uh, the Obama administration uh, at least sometimes was and the second thing is a structural shock which is the question of whether there is a long-term change here in the way that uh, in the way that that uh, trade and the economy the international economy are going to work and so I think that the uh, if you look at the russia sanctions for example these are not Obviously, going to be driven by the Trump administration. They're far more likely to happen if we get another Democratic administration in, which wants to respond and to retaliate for all of the forms of uh, interference that Russia has been up to over the last number of years. So, I think that the uh, the question that I think uh, maybe is the kind as the kind of the counter example to what I was saying about how the United, how how Europe needs to think about how its uh, actions might be responded to, is that the United. States, I think, needs to think in a much more systematic way about what kinds of consequences its actions are having for the efforts of others to evade its control or to create other ways of of conducting business, uh, whether these be states in Europe, whether this be China, which Ellie mentioned is conducting a very interesting experiment in uh, constructing an entire new uh, financial system, and whether or not it is private sector companies who are trying to find ways to uh, minimize their uh, minimize our risks vis-a-vis the United States. And the more that the United States presses on this stuff, the more likely it is that we're going to see various actors uh, seeking to use these countermeasures. And the final thing that I would observe here, and this is a shock that I think people haven't really begun to think about, is what if Elizabeth Warren becomes the president. I, I think that if Elizabeth Warren becomes the president, we're going to see a very interesting, plausible new form of uh, uses of extraterritoriality, where uh, Warren and other people uh, on the left of the Democratic Party want to try and uh, figure out ways to stop uh, stop capital from fleeing away from U.S. taxes. They want to uh, try and crack down on the ability of the rich to move taxes, and I think we're going to see a uh, a big, big push to explore what kinds of uh, extraterritorial means could be used against states in other parts of the world in order to try and uh, reshape the system uh, so as to make uh, it uh, more uh, impermeable to those kinds of uh, under-the-counter
0: capital flows. Great. Liz, maybe we can come back to you for a last word because we know that you're launching this new task force on coercive economic statecraft where you're moving beyond the sort of sanctions which you looked at in your first day. What are the new battlefields going to be in coercive economic statecraft in the future?
2: The, this task force that we just launched is looking at um, not just sanctions but also uh, tariffs or trade controls and restrictions and investment restrictions. Um, the sort of suite of uh, of economic policies that are so often taken in the United States or by U.S. authorities in service of foreign policy and national security goals. There's a new ma- major new pieces of legislation that will govern uh, trade controls, ex- so export controls uh, from the United States, and also investment security screening in the United States that I think will have profound impact on uh, Mm. the flow uh, between the United States and elsewhere in the high-tech sector. So AI, advanced robotics, uh, anything related to space, biotech, that entire uh, universe.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much to all of you for an absolutely fascinating discussion. Um, If you've enjoyed listening to us over the last few minutes, uh, you can find out more by heading to our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast, where we'll put up links to Ellie and Manuel's uh, fantastic paper on the challenge of secondary sanctions. And we'll also put links to Henry's book and to Liz's uh, task force report on maintaining America's coercive economic strength. We hope that you have enjoyed this so much that you want to let other people know about it as well. So please do write about it on your social media pages or ours. But for now, from Ellie guerin Liz Rosenberg, Henry Farrell, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of Easy Girls podcast is Jonathan Hackemposch, and our editor is Abba Reubing. Thank you very much.